welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who's massively inspired by real science. And our guest this episode is the amazing Rose Eveleth, who is a futurist and does the incredible podcast Flash Forward, which I hope that you're already listening to. And she also recently edited a book, an anthology of essays called What Future, which is a collection of the best writing about the future in 2018. So definitely check that out, too. And what we're going to be talking about today is basically the future of futurism. First of all, what the heck is futurism? Why do people do it for a living? How do they do it for a living? And where it's going? How easy is it now to sort of think about the future and to talk about it in a way that makes sense and is cogent and relevant to what's going on now? origins of futurism, I guess you could say it maybe it starts with prophecies, like biblical prophecies, or it starts with, say, 19th century science fiction, you know, maybe Mary Shelley or Jules Verne. But really, futurism as a serious endeavor doesn't really get started until the 20th century. Where does that happen? Like, when do we first see people talking about futurism, using the term futurism? The answer that no one likes that I like to give, which is <laughs> very on brand for me, is that in the early 1900s, there's an Italian art movement that uses the term futurism. And it's very different from what we're talking about today in that these are artists who are not thinking about technology. They're not doing like future shock. They're not doing things where they're saying, you know, I'm going to predict what's going to happen. But they are using the term futurism. And I think it's worth sort of trying to tie them together because I think that it's actually a good cautionary tale for futurists today. So 1908, there's a guy named uh, Filippo Marinetti. He's driving his car. He's in Italy. He ends up swerving out of the ray of a bike because at this point, the roads have not been sort of like codified as only for cars and how mm-hmm. dare you like attempt to use a road <laughs> for anything else. And he ends up in this car is upside down in a ditch. It's like totally destroyed and he is very angry. And he decides that he wants to write a manifesto about futurism and about progress because to him, this is a great example of like this stupid person on a bike is eschewing progress where I'm in my car and like I am, you know, progress. And he's been part of this Italian art movement for a while that has a variety of people in it, um, mostly men. They're actually very staunchly anti-feminist in all of their texts. But he basically writes literally what he calls a manifesto about futurism. I want to just say a couple of things that are related to this manifesto, because I think that probably listeners will pick out the similarities for what we're talking about. Things like progress, the importance of machines, the power of machines over people. Disruption is a word they like to use a lot. A lot of things that like we hear a lot currently by yeah, tech people. Especially in Silicon Valley. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I just want to read to you some of the bullet points. I won't read all of them. This is a poet, and it's also, this is translated from Italian, so not all the translations are going to look the same. But um, number one, we want to sing the love of danger, the habit of energy and rashness. <laughs> Number wow. two, I'm, I'm, I'm just describing Silicon Valley. Number two, the essential elements of our poetry will be courage, audacity, and revolt. 
And then they go on to sort of talk about how important it is to trust machines, to really invest in machines and invest in progress and sort of not look back. It's important not to look back because we're futurists. We only look at the future. So this is 1909 that this is published. And these Italian futurists end up really sort of spawning this whole movement in Italy that essentially leads to fascism. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So um, huh. this is a different, I mean, we're not talking about the kind of futurism that we're going to eventually talk about in this episode, but I do think it's worth bringing that up as sort of a proto-futurism because it is sort of a cautionary tale about the ways that just looking at the future without looking at the past can kind of lead down dangerous roads, especially maybe now at a time when fascism is on the rise. Yeah, who globally? would have thought that disruption and trusting machines over people could lead to fascism? I mean, who would have thought that? Who would have thought? Yeah. yeah. And like they also talk about the need for people who are smart and inventive to make their own brands. They talk about this guy was a poet and he was one of the first poets to really kind of say that, you know, poets should have a personal brand, basically, and they should become personas. And this is the way of the future, right? And we have these technologists who are doing this exact thing. And they they say things like there are Silicon Valley guys who have said literally, like, I don't care about the history. History doesn't matter to me. All that matters is moving forward. And that's literally exactly what these guys are saying. Yeah. So it's definitely like I kept hearing the phrase move fast and break things, which is the Mm -hmm. Facebook credo. And that's exactly what they've done, including breaking democracy. And also it's interesting that the kind of fetishization of machines is there right yeah. early as this it's was being formulated. Totally. This was automobiles. And actually, one of the big things that the Italian futurists were obsessed with were airplanes. This was like early airplanes, early wow. aviation. And so you can track that to spaceflight, right? Like, it's so easy mm-hmm. to just track all of this to what we're seeing now. And so I think, you know, there is no direct line between these fascists and Silicon Valley or, you know, any of the people that we're talking about now. But I think there is sort of something to be said for connecting those things and not letting that kind of first version or earlier version of futurism fade away as a concept because it is so easily tracked onto what we're talking about now and what we hear people talk about now in futurism. And I think every time I bring this up, people like think I'm a conspiracy theorist or I'm like, this was all predicted in 1908 or whatever, <laughs> which is not true. But I think that there's a tendency with that word futurism to think that it's only looking forward. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get into trouble, right? Is you only look forward and you don't care about what's come before. And the Italian futurists also talk about how they don't care about museums and libraries and how those things need to be disrupted and they shouldn't they shouldn't get so much money and you know things that we're seeing like digitization like all this stuff it just is so prescient and like somewhat terrifying to sort of see how it all unfolds and then like results in the rise of fascism particularly in 2019 in the US yeah. and in Europe right well, like it's especially important for us to be thinking about this because this is the history of futurism right, and right. we don't want to forget that futurism has a history right mm-hmm. and i think to jump forward a little bit and into the american context um, where we are today physically and <laughs> temporally you know there's kind of two strands of futurism that emerge kind of in the mid 20th century. And we have a couple of clips that I want to play to kind of demonstrate this. The first one is from a documentary narrated by Orson Welles based on Future Shock, which was a book that came out in 1970. It was by Alvin and Heidi Toffler. It's kind of Interesting, like, a bit of a reaction against this Italian futurist idea. I don't think they were explicitly responding to the Italian futurists, but they were talking about how the future is coming so quickly and time is accelerating or it subjectively seems to be accelerating so fast that people are in shock and they can't take it in anymore. Here's a great clip from the very beginning of this documentary where Orson Welles is in a car and he's talking about the future smacking us in the face. Our modern technology has achieved a degree of sophistication beyond our wildest dreams, but this technology has exacted a pretty heavy price. 
We live in an age of anxiety, a time of stress, and with all our sophistication, we are in fact the victims of our own technological strength. We are the victims of shock, of future shock. That was 1970. And the other futurist tradition from the United States starts really kind of in the early 60s. And I think a great example of it is Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Rachel Carson was a scientist who was very concerned about the use of DDT and other pesticides in the environment. And in 62, when she publishes this book, it is a work of futurism. She says, look, we're putting this stuff into the environment. What's going to happen next? So let's listen to her. She's talking here in a documentary made in the early 60s about her book. But for the population as a whole, we must be more concerned with the delayed effects of absorbing small amounts of the pesticides that invisibly contaminate our world. We have to remember that children born today are exposed to these chemicals from birth, perhaps even before birth. Now what is going to happen to them in adult life as a result of that exposure? We simply don't know. The cool thing about thinking about future shock and silent spring as kind of the progenitors of today's futurism is that one is really about how the future is freaking us out. Things are too futuristic and we're trying to cope with an inundation of futuristic crap, mostly technology. Mm -hmm. The other is this kind of warning about what might come next really specific to the environment. So it's really focused on earth science, the human environment and how we're changing it and how can we plan for it better. So one is really, in a sense, Future Shock is about pushing back against the future and Silent Spring is about let's embrace the future and remember that what we do now affects the future. You know, another thing to sort of think about in terms of mid-20th century futurism is that sort of rash of articles and retrofuturistic, things that are now retrofuturistic that are like the world of 2000, where it's like all of these images of we're all going to be eating food pills, we're all going to be like flying through the air in our personal jetpacks, and there's going to be amazing robot servants, and like everything's going to be just like beautiful and gleaming white and sparkly and there was a lot of architecture that was kind of trying to invoke that sense of like the wonderful future that was just around the corner. There was like, you know, in addition to the kind of warnings and kind of fears that were expressed by Future Shock and and Silent Spring, there was this kind of torrent of just random articles and media things that were kind of portraying this beautiful future that was coming for us. And if you look at the retrofuturism blog that Matt Novak does, it's just chock full of that stuff. And I wondered there too, and I, I don't know if this is true, this is I'm just now making things up, but my opinions are correct because I'm on this podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I wondered too, because there is, at some point, there's a big divergence in futurism and you get sort of techno-utopian futurism, which is sort of what you're describing, this idea that like everything's going to be better, improvement is good, progress is good for the sake of progress, we can't turn back, all that stuff. And then the folks who are sort of raising the alarm saying, hey, dystopias can happen too, right? And then, mm-hmm. and and you have kind of that divergence between the techno-utopian people who believe that all this technology is going to give us these cities underwater or, you know, the Tom Swift version of the future. And then you have the other people who, like Rachel Carson, are saying like, hey, actually, maybe this is not great and maybe we should think before we do things. And, you know, this isn't all going to solve our problems and rapid acceleration isn't going to be the best thing. I mean, there are futurists, and we can talk about this, who think that like literally the worst thing they can imagine 
is that the singularity doesn't come soon enough. Um, So like if that's your idea of what the worst possible future is, like you're in a totally different universe than people who are like, (laughs) maybe climate change is the worst thing. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so let's let's have a brief moment to talk about the singularity. Trying to give you an opening. Yeah, (laughs) thanks very much. Because I think futurism right now in some ways is either reacting against the idea of the singularity, this techno-utopianism, or kind of trying to do an end run around the singularity. So one of the great proponents of the singularity is Ray Kurzweil, who is a former computer scientist, now a public intellectual. He works at Google. He writes a lot of books about how soon we will all upload our brains to the universe. And he published a book in 2009 called The Coming Singularity. And here he is talking a little bit about that. Uh, The singularity is not just that point where we achieve human level of intelligence in a machine. I mean, that will start a new revolution where these machines will continue to grow exponentially in power. They'll be able to actually improve their own software design. By 2045, we'll have expanded the intelligence of our human machine civilization a billion fold. That will be a singularity. Earlier in this talk that he's giving, he says, he begins his talk by saying, by 2020, we'll have computers that are powerful enough to simulate the human brain. So he's really, one of the things about Ray Kurzweil and a lot of other singularitarians is they're really convinced that it's happening like right away. Mm-hmm. And they keep missing the mark. They keep sort of saying it's going to be in 10 years and it's always sort of 10 years out. But what is it about the singularity, you think, that has just really caught people's imaginations? Like, why is that so important to futurists right now? I think it's a certain kind of futurist. You know, this idea of nothing could be more powerful than the thing that I make is a very specific kind of person's idea of the future. And I think it's also, you know, Madeline Ashby says, like, living forever is great when you're making compound interest. Like, it's a very specific kind of person who has a lot of money and a lot of time on their hands. And, you know, they can't imagine anything disrupting that power aside Mm -hmm. from this, like, sort of unfathomable thing that they've kind of helped create. It's the same, I think it sort of falls into the same bucket as, you know, robot uprising, AI uprising, is that nothing is more powerful than these things that I have made. And, and of course, the end goal for singularitarians is usually that we eventually turn the entire universe into a substrate for our minds. Right. So we will, like, literally <laughs> take over the universe yeah. with our great brain. I think it's appealing right now, especially because the world is kind of falling apart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's this yeah. really feeling of helplessness, I think, among most people that climate change is a problem politics everything feels like completely you're completely helpless like we know that we're not IPCC has said that like we're basically not going to fix climate change because these hundred companies that really have the power aren't going to do it because they won't make money you know and so there's like in the face of that in some ways it's like yeah if I could just upload my brain and stop worrying about the planet and stop worrying about all this stuff like that's kind of a nice out it's like an out of jail free card especially among powerful people when they are faced with this fact that like they actually can't fix it and nothing that they do is going to fix it. This is like the only way they can kind of cope with that information. I actually read an interview years ago with Werner Vinge, the guy who kind of came up with the idea of the singularity originally, where he basically said that people were asking, why do you believe in the singularity or why do you think it's it's possible? And he was like, well, because if the singularity doesn't happen, I can't think of another way that we're not going to be screwed. Basically, yeah. he was like, either we're going to have the singularity and AIs are going to take care of all these problems that we've created, or there's really no other option for how the human race is not going to be kind of royally screwed. And, you know, I think that it is often among people who are like huge believers in the singularity, there is this kind of somewhat egocentric thing of like, well, the human race might be screwed, but I will live forever. I'm going to be, you know, become a god. And, you know, AIs are going to 
take us into the stars and we're going to turn everything into computronium, which is like, <laughs> I feel like computronium <laughs> is the new unobtainium. <laughs> I mean, or the old unobtainium yeah. because yeah. It's, it's been around for a while. There is a failure of imagination there where it's just, okay, well, either we're going to become super smart and figure it out later because mm-hmm. that's what it always is. It's like, well, eventually we'll be smarter and we'll come up with something instead of like, well, actually, like some of the problems are really like a child could solve them. There is this other element, too, that I think doesn't get talked about as much in terms of some of the folks who are really into the singularity and into these ideas of this artificial substrate of like just you know, putting ourselves somewhere else is that they don't tend to have a cultural connection to earth and the, the actual physical earth and the land. And like, you know, maybe they go mountain biking on their like fancy thousand dollar mountain bikes or sure. whatever. But there is a dearth of indigenous voices. There's a dearth of voices who have a more direct connection generally sort of culturally to the actual physical earth and like the outdoors and being outside and like having some kind of historical feeling about the planet. I just don't see that reflected in a lot of the people who are really excited about the singularity. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, these are people who you mentioned food pills, like would love to just drink Soylent. Like the idea of like having to take care of a physical body is cumbersome and annoying because it's not predictable and it's not doesn't follow the algorithm and it doesn't do the efficient thing right and like all of these inefficient systems that they identify like their own bodies or like the earth where you can't really wrangle it to do what you want or like women or like people who don't agree with them whatever it is (laughs) you know like that is I think it's an appealing way to kind of be like oh well in this world we don't have to deal with that and I don't have any connection to that so it's not meaningful to me and there's this logical leap they make between I don't have a connection to that to it's not important which is I think is worth interrogating because <laughs> right. it's not true. But yeah, I, I think I see that too. So these days you can actually be a futurist as a job. You can get a college degree. Generally, these kinds of jobs are called forecasting or foresight consulting. So let's talk a little bit about that. What does it mean to be a professional futurist? What does that look like and what do people do? <laughs> Strategic foresight. <laughs> yeah. Um, you learn how to make companies more money and just feed the gaping maw of capitalism. I, I am so actually- that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Madeline Ashby yeah. earlier, and yeah. she works as a yes. foresight consultant. And some of them are good. Yeah, some of them are good. And she works a lot with the government. Mm-hmm. So the Canadian mm-hmm. government has been really interested in using this as a way to help make government policy, for example. More and more people are realizing that if you can try to make educated guesses about what's going to happen, you can make better policy today. And that's, you know, not a shocking uh, revelation, right? There are strategies, right? Strategic foresight, there are, you learn strategies. Amy Webb is another person who calls herself a quantitative futurist, right? Where she's reading the papers and actually trying to kind of figure out from what we know now what the likelihood of various things are. Tim Mon also does this because he's a former reporter and like now a science fiction writer. Also, um, in Canada. Also in Canada. <laughs> there is an element of if you've spent your whole career thinking about the likelihood of X, Y, or Z happening, you're very useful for a government or a giant corporation to kind of bring in and, and offer some insight into like how things might change. You know, what if we're talking about climate change? You know, Coca-Cola is very interested in how resources might change, how land use might change, how the supply chains might change when they still want to supply Coke instead of water to like lots of parts of the world. I'm very cynical about these sorts of things in part because I just see a lot of really talented futurists like making a ton of money doing this consulting and sometimes I wonder like is this for the better of the world or is this just to make money because ExxonMobil employs tons of futurists to help them figure out how to manage sort of the future of 
this thing that's destroying all of us. So there are good things. And there are people who are very good at it, like um, Madeline Ashby is, is very good at it and I think is not engaging in some of these things that I'm talking about. But I think there are also sort of more unscrupulous futurists who are just sort of out to make money and they're not thinking about a global future. They're thinking about like, how do I help this particular company? There's also a group here in the Bay Area where we are recording this, the Institute for the Future, which has been doing this kind of consulting for a really long time, both for private industry and for governments and for non-governmental organizations. And one of the things I've learned working with them, and I've, I've worked with them on a couple of different projects, is that foresight it's a little different from the classic kind of futurism in that you're not trying to predict one kind of future. Like you're not Rachel Carson saying like, everybody's going to die yeah. or, <laughs> you know, like, or we're all going to drive around in like super fast cars that upload our brains or whatever. It's really about coming up with multiple alternatives. Yeah. And so one of the hallmarks of, I guess, a professional futurist or professional foresight consultant is they're never going to say to you, absolutely, sure, this is going right. to happen. They're going to say, here's four possibilities depending on you know money, depending on climate, depending on social unrest, all of these things might go differently. And I think that's part of what makes it kind of a professional job because it feels like it's a little bit more informed. It's yeah. not just kind of like what we do in science fiction where we just say like, <laughs> sure, whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And even before that, even before you're presenting options, right, you're saying to a company or to an organization, here are the things you need to know. Here's the information that you're going to need to go out and gather before you can even come up with those scenarios, right? Because if you don't have data, if you don't have information about what you're thinking about, then you, you can't come up with scenarios. You know, a lot of what the consulting work is, is, you know, going in and saying, okay, well, you need to know X, Y, and Z before I can even present scenarios to you because you don't have the information that you need to be able to figure out what might happen. The other thing that I think does happen sometimes in these sort of consulting roles is that big companies like to bring in someone who they say they've consulted and then ignore everything that they've said. So I know this happens to a lot of futurists, especially those who maybe don't give the answers that the big company might want to hear, uh. but they like to have them in and they keep getting invited back because they want to have someone in the room to basically do that thing and sort of say, hey, you know, here's what you should think about. And they're like, great. And, you know, then they can say, well, we consulted a futurist. Right. We're going to take a quick musical interlude. And when we're back, the future of futurism. One of the things we were talking about earlier is that Things are really chaotic in the world right now, and that's part of what makes us yearn for futurism because it kind of gives us this way out. But also it makes futurism really hard to do. I've certainly found in my own science fiction writing that sometimes I'll think I'm writing something that's like the future and it'll be already outdated by the time the thing gets published. I had one short story where basically one of the things in the short story is that like, what if the government starts using drones to kill people? And then by the time <laughs> the story was published, the government was using drones to kill people. And, you know, part of the story is that like there'd be a huge outcry and people would be really outraged if that started happening. And guess what? People were just like, oh, yeah, we're using drones to kill people. I guess we're doing that now. And like <laughs> there was like none of the outcry that I had thought might happen. And, you know, it was kind of sad to realize that my story was not only outdated, but that I had been too optimistic about human nature in that story. And I was just looking back, like Charles Strauss, who used to write a lot of stuff that was set in the near future, said about 
11 years ago, he said in 2008, that we could no longer write near future science fiction because things were changing too quickly. And that, you know, he certainly had some novels that he was working on that were invalid by the time he was finished writing them and he had to go back and rewrite them. That's something he complains about a lot on his blog. I think Brexit kind of messed him up on some of the stuff he was working on. I think it's interesting that he was saying that in 2008, which was like maybe a year or two after like smartphones came along. And that was a period where people especially felt like every day things are new and different and we can't keep up. And like any prediction we make is going to be invalid by the time we finish the end of this sentence, I think that the era immediately after the start of smartphones was like one of a lot of feeling like things were technology was moving really quickly. And now it's more that politics is changing really quickly. And like nobody really saw Brexit coming. Nobody saw a lot of stuff that's going on right now coming. It's a really weird time to think about the near future because any prediction you made a few years ago was devastatingly wrong. And, you know, it's tough and there's no real easy answer other than to just be as weird as possible, I guess. Rose, what's the answer? So uh, this is the thing I love to do that everyone hates, which is I will tell you a story from history. Um, (laughs) Actually, similarly to the Italian futurists in the U.S. and in the U.K. in the early 1900s, there was a similar moment in scientific history, at least. They were discovering all of these invisible things, x-rays, the fact that you could, you know, telegraph, like all the stuff that you could transmit through the air. And there was this idea that, like, anything was possible. We have no idea what's going on. You know, like, we're discovering all this stuff. And this was actually the moment where the idea of telepathy really seized both America and Europe as this potential thing that we could do because it made sense, right? Like there's invisible stuff traveling through the air all the time that they were discovering. You know, if you can use an x-ray and see into somebody's body, why wouldn't the brain also be emitting something, right? It makes sense. And you read some of these documents that they write and they're so close, right? They're like, maybe there's electrical currents in the brain. And you're like, yeah, there are, but they're not like this as strong as a radio signal, you know? And so like- It's not Wi-Fi. Exactly. Like they're so close though. And it totally makes sense that at the time they really felt like anything was possible. There was no way to predict anything. Everybody should just be like looking into everything. And so we've been in stages like this before. So I think that sometimes I get a little frustrated when people are like, this is a brand new era and we've never felt this before and like technology is changing and we go through stages, right? Where like this happens and there's Mm -hmm. these big booms in understanding the world and trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, now we know more just in general because we have access to more information and all of us can like open up our phones and like find out what's going on in whatever part of the world that we might be interested in. It comes in boom and bust cycles. When it comes to predictions, predictions are always a bad idea to make in general, right? Because even if you are in a lull period, even if if you're in a period where we aren't in this big like boom of all this stuff happening, it's really hard to tell what's going to happen because something can change in an instant. And that's why most futurists who are good don't make predictions. As you said, they make kind of here's five ways it could go or here's some things you should think about. You know, predictions are inherently risky, right? In terms of solutions, like where's futurism going? I mean, the best thing to do for futurism is to include more people as futurists, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like so often when people imagine a futurist, they think of like a white guy probably wearing glasses, probably wearing a black t-shirt and jeans on a TED Talk stage. Like, uh-huh. that is what... He's, mm-hmm. he's got a really, like, beautifully shaved head. Yes. Like, yeah, just yeah. a perfectly sculpted bald head. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, you know when people say futurist, that's what people picture. And they're not necessarily wrong because those are the people who get the microphone and who get to do those TED Talks and all that stuff. Futurism is much more interesting and probably much more accurate if you include more people who might have actually seen some of this fascism coming because they've seen hate crimes rising in their neighborhoods because they live in places that aren't, you know, San Jose or whatever. Mm-hmm. you know, certain neighborhoods in San Jose. So I think that that's the, the solution. The solution is to, like, diversify futurism. There's a really great new book out from N.K. Jemison called How Long Till Black Future Month, which is a collection of her short stories. And we have a great clip here of her 
at the Strand Bookstore in New York talking a little bit about the seed of the idea for that book and how she was thinking about the future. And so I grew up watching the Jetsons and thinking, okay, one day we'll all live in this wonderful future where we're flying around in these nice cars and we've all got robot butlers. I do have a Roomba, but, um, (laughs) and, you know, so on. As I got older, it suddenly started to occur to me that there's nobody black in the Jetsons world. Um, And they all live in this city above the clouds and we don't know what's going on beneath the clouds. And I started to want, like even the robot is white. I started to wonder, oh, is that where they are? Throughout the Jetsons is this wonderful, happy utopia masking a horrifying dystopia beneath the clouds. So I began to realize that science fiction again and again and again was filled with these unspoken, silent, deeply disturbing dystopias and apocalypses, these genocides that no one ever mentioned. So there she was specifically talking about the idea of Afrofuturism and what it does and what it means to think about a future for African-Americans as well as for white people and other groups. And I just I love the fact that she's picking on the Jetsons because Every time I talk to people about the future, I feel like the Jetsons comes up, either as something we're rejecting or something that we think is awesome. It's always like, oh, well, that's what the future will be like. And she's like, actually, did you ever think about how there had to have been some horrible genocide in order for (laughs) everyone to be white in this show? And so I think that's part of what you lose is if you don't have diverse visions in futurism. And I think that's now becoming even more obvious as we're seeing kind of a a retreat into nationalism where the fate of people in different parts of the world may look really different, you know? Mm -hmm. So are there futurists that you think are doing really good work in this area that we should be paying attention to? There are a lot of people who are doing really interesting things and thinking about the future, but they don't call themselves futurists. And in fact, the things that they're doing are very close-term futurism because they're working in communities on the ground trying to make things happen right now and sort of for the near-near future as opposed to thinking about the singularity, right? Mm -hmm. Like sort Uh, of in the Rachel Carson Exactly. There's a woman named Aisha Nyandoro, who is working in Jackson, Mississippi on a basic income project. And she is completely divorced from like the Silicon Valley folks who think that this is what we need to do because robots are going to take all of our jobs. So everyone needs basic income. You know, she had worked for years and years in Jackson, Mississippi, trying to close the gap, the inequality gap, specifically for black mothers in Jackson. And it wasn't working. Like she was doing all this stuff. And what she was saying is that like they just need money. Like we can have a million social programs for them and they just need money. And so she's working on this program, which, you know, know, UBI is such a buzzword right now in futurism, but she's not included in those conversations about futurism. So I think those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in, in terms of people who are trying to work on community action and sort of smaller scale things that don't end up getting included in those conversations about sort of big F futurism, right? And when I asked her, I was like, do you, do you ever think about like the robot, whatever? And she was like, I never think about robots, <laughs> you know, which is so like, but I would still consider her a futurist, right? Because she's thinking about how do I make my community better in the future, right? I mean, there are people who were calling out the rise in fascism long before Trump was elected that like weren't included in those conversations. So sometimes when people say like, well, there's futurism kind of with a small F where it comes to like Adrian Marie Brown or Walida Imarisha, who are both doing really interesting things, trying to kind of change the conversation around the future, but don't consider themselves necessarily futurists with a capital F and wouldn't probably even be invited into some of those professional societies because they don't have the credentials that are required. Yeah, it sounds like in a sense, we're back at square one where only certain people are allowed to define the future and then people 
people who are working in communities who are actually building a future are somehow considered to be lesser because what they're doing is short term, like you said, and it's also based on practice as opposed to theory and as as opposed to kind of going into a room with a bunch of people and giving them pieces of paper. That's depressing, but also kind of liberating because it means there's this whole space out there that we can take over and start talking about the future. And like those strategic foresight people can just go have fun by themselves. Right. And I, I, in some ways I get it, right? You, if you are trying to create a professional organization and trying to kind of define sure. a profession, which I think they're still trying to do. I don't know that futurism is really defined like engineering, you know, where you get a ring when you graduate from your like weird program, whatever. <laughs> but you literally do. You get a ring. No, you do. Yeah. And I mean, there should be a futurist ring. We should make that. Yeah, It exactly. should like glow in the dark. But yeah. it's like, but it should be democratic. Like anyone yeah. can be a future. As long as you've planned for the future, including like just making a really good shopping list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's futurism. That's a Kickstarter, if I've ever heard one. <laughs> but if you're trying to build a professional society around a very specific set of qualifications, I get why you're trying to protect that. And that's where I think the word futurism almost is like kind of muddy, and maybe they should pick a different word, or we should pick a different word. Or, uh, I think there are many ways to do futurism, and one of them is that very specific consulting kind of strategic foresight. And then there's a million other ways that I think are vastly more interesting and more important um, <laughs> that other people are doing. Um, I'm biased because that's the kind of stuff I'm doing. I'm not doing that consulting stuff. But I think that when you think about what's going to make an actual impact in the future and who are the people who you kind of want to get behind when you're thinking like, okay, if I have to like line up behind somebody and run at a future, I'm not lining up behind the strategic foresight people. Like I'm lining Mm. up behind the people who are trying to like fortify their communities for the future in a really thoughtful and smart and on the ground and kind of like knowledgeable way. I wanted to talk a little bit about Flash Forward and what you do as a lowercase f futurist (laughs) there because every episode starts with a fictional version of the future and then you talk to people about the reality. So tell us a little bit about combining fiction and nonfiction in futurism. It's really fun. I mean, I think that there's a long tradition, right, of like combining fiction and journey. I mean, you both do this. So, you know, maybe I did not invent this. right? (laughs) To me, there is power in that Rachel Carson version of imagining the future where you say, okay, let's just pretend for a second that we go down this road. What does that look like? And then kind of pull back and say, okay, you know, what do we know about this? What do we know about things we can do about it? I do think that there is some hazard in potentially mixing because on the show, I actually am very clear every episode and say very specifically, like, this part is fake and this part is real. Because for the first couple episodes, we sent out a couple of, like, test episodes before it came out and people didn't know what was real and what wasn't. People were like, is this part real or are the experts fake? And there was this like confusion about what was real and what wasn't. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting from like an arts perspective, but as a journalist, I was like, no, yeah. no, we have to be very clear. Especially now when we start thinking about the future of fake news and the future of the ways things get separated from their context and can sometimes accelerate in directions that you never expected. I am very careful and I worry all the time about making sure that that mixture is done ethically and isn't done in such a way to perpetuate any kind of like fake news situation. But I do think it's a useful tool, right? It's a useful tool to be able to present like, hey, okay, let's take this and run with it as far as we can. Really, like, how far can we go with this idea? And what does that world actually look like from like a character perspective? And if you were living in that world, what would that be like? Because I think sometimes the future as it's presented can feel very abstract and sort Mm -hmm. of like hard to relate to. No, it's super interesting. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot, both for fiction and nonfiction, is why do we do this? You know, why do we talk about the future as opposed to talking about history or just sort of writing about the way things are now. And I think that we're at this point where futurism is just key to our survival, especially when it comes to climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of science now 
is kind of futurism. And we have all of these predictive models about the climate that we're arguing over their believability. We're basically arguing over, well, what is the future going to be? Are we actually accurately surmising that, you know, sea level will rise or that weather will become more unpredictable? And I think part of futurism for me is just getting people used to the idea that, yeah, actually, based on historical data, we can make educated guesses that sometimes are really accurate and not in terms of like who's going to win for the next president necessarily, but like how hot the planet will be over the next thousand years. We can kind of, we, we actually can do that. Yeah. There I, are models. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, one of the episodes in this coming season, which I think will go up before this episode, so I'm not spoiling anything, is about geoengineering and about Ooh. sort of solar radiation management. And what if you spewed a bunch of sulfate into the air to try to control the climate? All of this is based on modeling, right? We're trying to understand if we do this, what are the impacts? And we know that the impacts will not be uniform. We know that it won't be that just the planet cools uniformly and nothing mm-hmm. else happens. That, that's like a fantasy land, right? And so these models try to look at, okay, you know, where do the monsoons get worse? Where does the drought get worse? Where, how does this change the climate cycles? And all of those are futurisms, right? Like all of those are trying to guess what's going to happen based on the information that you have. And there's this interesting thing that happens with those models. Scientists are generally very good at saying, here's the assumptions that I'm making. Here's what's going into the model. Here's the data I have. Here's the data I don't have. And when you read the papers, they're very meticulous about that. And when you talk to scientists um, and get into it, they really say like, here's the confidence I have in this model. Here's what this model is not good at seeing. This model is not good at clouds. This model's not good at, you know, and they can have that conversation. But then there's this thing that happens when you take those models and then you pull back to ethics or policy. And so few ethicists or policymakers actually understand what models are and how they work. These models become sort of facts Mm -hmm. um, in this really interesting way that I'm sort of fascinated by in terms of like, how do you communicate uncertainty, not necessarily even to the public, but to people who are trying to decide, is this an ethical thing to do? And all of these ethics papers, they go through and they look at these models and basically say, like, if we do this, this will happen. And we actually can't say that. And so I think that people are going to need to be able to get really comfortable with degrees of uncertainty in futurism and this idea of here's what we can guess and here's what we know and here's what we can't know, because they're going to be a huge part in those decision-making processes if, like, we do decide, like, are we going to do this? Are we going to geoengineer the planet? If we assume that those models are fact, then that leads us down one road. If we assume they're not, it leads us down another road. So I'm fascinated by the ways that people understand models and what they are and aren't, even within, like, academic disciplines, right? Ethicists really present them as, like, this is what will happen. And scientists are like, no, (laughs) don't (laughs) say that, you know? And you have to land somewhere in between because otherwise, like, if you, you know, there is some certainty. We do know some things. We can say with pretty, you know, high confidence certain things will happen. But there is that, like, weird, fuzzy middle ground that, like, ethicists love and scientists hate. And there's, like, this battle between who wins. Yeah, and there's that hard thing of when you're talking about climate change, it's something that's going to take place over a long period of time. And there's going to be all kinds of perturbations in the meantime. So it's like, well, yeah. Yeah, we're having a really rainy year in California. Does that mean that we're out of a drought? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> it actually yeah. doesn't. When it comes to climate, things like climate, we're talking about really complex systems that involve a lot of factors that are actually really hard to predict or quantify in some cases. It's a really complicated system that's been shaped over millions of years. The changes are going to be over a long period of time as well, although in the medium term, I think there's going to be some noticeable changes. In addition to providing models of like how we could 
grapple with climate change or what we could do to avoid the worst effects of climate change through geoengineering or through just, you know, trying to reduce carbon emissions. It's just important to kind of try to visualize, like people have a really hard time visualizing a future that's not a continuation of the present. Like I think that's part of the problems with futurism is that people always want to prognosticate in a straight line. All the trend lines that are happening right now will continue it's forever yeah. <laughs> into the yeah. future forever, just like straight lines as far as the eye can see. Until you hit the singularity. And you, know, and you see that in economics where people are like, well, we've had X amount of growth in the economy for the last like 10 quarters. Therefore, it'll continue to grow at that rate until the end of time. I wrote articles about this for io9 about, you know, the psychology of thinking about the future and how people can't really imagine a future that's not a, a direct continuation. And so it, it takes a lot of just like trying to make people understand potential futures that are radically different just to get past that weird inability that we have to see other possibilities. That's a problem with human nature in a way. There are some studies that suggest that reading fiction actually does help with that, right? They know that reading fiction helps you empathize with others, right? Because you have to put yourself in the character's shoes and whatever. I've seen like one or two papers that reading science fiction and reading things about the future helps you kind of be able to think about the future in a way that you can't necessarily naturally. Climate pessimists often say that we're doomed because people can't imagine their grandchildren, right? Like they just can't, like, you know, you know that they might exist, but you can't really truly picture them. And if you can't do that, then you kind of can't make the decisions that you need to make. And the people who are the most sort of pessimistic pessimistic about climate say like we're just fucked because there's just no way that because humans just can't do it. I don't know if I'm that pessimistic about it as although I am often very pessimistic in general because there are some studies that say that this is something you can train that like we can learn how to think better about time and about space and sort of about the future and there are actually some really interesting scholars who are working on ways to try to make people think about time less linearly and if that can kind of open up the ways that we think about the future of the earth and sort of the system. I don't know that there's been results of, like that have been quantified there but I think it's really interesting and it's worth trying because like why not you know we're not doing a good job right now I'd love to see a little bit more research on like how helpful we are being by writing science fiction to (laughs) save the future because that's what I want to (laughs) know I think that's a good place to end (laughs) yeah more research is needed that's like the end of every scientific paper pretty much (laughs) so so the new season of Flash Forward is just starting where can people find it tell us more people can find it on any podcasting app flashforwardpod.com we're also on Twitter and Instagram and all those places I just got new merch in the store, Ooh. which I'm very excited about. One is a shirt that says Imagine Better Futures, which is very on Ooh, point for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's five episodes all about the Earth, and so everything from geoengineering to what would happen if the poles reversed to sort of all sorts of other stuff. It's fun and weird, and there are some very fun little fictional scenes at the top that are all based on a fictional Shark Tank television show, which I'm it's funny. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a fun little Yay. season. I'm excited. I can't wait. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Well, thanks so much, thanks for, so joining much us. for joining us. Thanks Yay. for having me. This was so fun. Thanks so much. That was another awesome episode. Thanks to our guest, Rose Eveleth, for joining us. Here's a reminder to you that Our Opinions Are Correct has a Patreon, and we would love it if you would think about supporting us. You can give us a dollar. You can give us a pet canary. We're not really don't sure what we would do with that. But, don't, don't you know, that. give us, like, the financial equivalent of a pet canary. Um, we would really appreciate that. You can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can find us on Interweb, our 
ouropinionsarecorrect.com, and that's where we put all our show notes. And also, you can get our stream on Libsyn or Apple Podcasts or any other great place for finding podcasts. And please do review us on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find us. Our Opinions Are Correct is recorded at Women's Audio Mission, and our producer is Veronica Simonetti, who is like incredibly awesome and badass. And our music is by Chris Palmer. And we will hear you soon, or you'll hear us soon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. Bye.